Hi everyone, welcome to the Population and Scarcity pre-recorded lecture. If you're following along in the optional text, the content we're covering today can be found on pages 13 through 30. Also, I encourage you to take breaks throughout the lecture. The content is easier to digest. I'll try to flag natural stopping points for you to take a quick break or perhaps work on your guided notes. To get us started, I want to highlight what I've outlined as the objectives for this week. These objectives would be accomplished through listening to this lecture, but also by completing your guided notes and attending class on Thursday and completing the assignments in class on Thursday. So by the end of week two, you should be able to define carrying capacity, ecological footprint, zero population growth, birth rate, death rate, and fertility rate. You should be able to provide examples of how population size, affluence, and technology and innovation can influence environmental impact. You should be able to synthesize what you learned about population growth and population growth decline to brainstorm solutions to address environmental impact moving forward into the future. And you should be able to critically analyze proposed solutions to reduce environmental impact in a way that identifies the complexities associated with those solutions and the potential injustices associated with those solutions. To get started, I want to ask you all, what do you think of when you think of the desert? I personally think of words like hot, dry, sand, vast, solitude, quiet, serene. I think of coyotes, scorpions, desert bunnies. And actually, the desert is one of my favorite places in the world. I actually lived in the desert for a little while. It was a smaller town, Sierra Vista. It was kind of a military retirement community about 30 minutes from the Mexican border. But it's near a lot of rural desert communities, which is probably why I personally have these descriptions of the desert in my mind, along with, you know, standard desert pictures. But I wanna transport us three hours north of the area where I lived to Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix is the fifth largest city in the United States. It only gets about seven inches of rain per year, and the summer temperatures can exceed 120 degrees Fahrenheit or 49 degrees Celsius. If you're anything like me, that sounds pretty unbearable to you. And up to the 1950s, it wasn't a particularly popular place to live. In the 1950s, Phoenix was home to less than half a million people. Today, Phoenix is home to about 1.6 million people. This is about 40% growth per decade. In the 1990s, Phoenix was growing at an average of 300 people per day. So what does it mean for a city to experience this kind of growth in terms of resources? Think about what else comes with people as they move into cities. I'd like you to kind of pause the video and think about this. If you're following along in the guided notes, there's a question that you can fill out now related to this. When people move somewhere, the demands for things like water, food, and space, for things like housing and recreation, grows. 
When people move somewhere, they also bring with them the waste that they're going to produce. In Phoenix, because of the heat, there's also a large demand for air conditioning, as you would imagine. People also bring their cars, and together, these things contribute to things like air pollution and climate change. The number of people isn't the only thing to think about when we're thinking of resources, though. We need to think about the lifestyles and the consumption habits of those people who are living in these spaces. Do you know what the estimate is for the daily minimum amount of water needed for human survival is? It's only five gallons per day. That's what people need, minimum, to survive. People living in Tucson, Arizona, which is about two hours south of Phoenix and is very similar in terms of climate, consumes approximately 160 gallons of water per day. Do you wanna guess how much people consume in Phoenix? The average person consumes 225 gallons of water per day. So we need to ask ourselves, why? Of course, there's the obvious, drinking water, showers, dishwashers, toilets, but that doesn't really explain the difference between Tucson and Phoenix. I've been to Phoenix before, and I can say from personal experience that there are places in Phoenix that are so wonderfully green, beautiful lawns and parks, fabulous shopping centers and golf courses that you wouldn't know you were in the middle of a desert. So this illustrates that it's not just the number of people living in a place that we need to consider. We must also consider their lifestyle and affluence, the things that influence their consumption habits. I also want to mention the impact of population growth on biodiversity. In this example, the more space human takes up, the less space desert species have to live and thrive. Humans are overtaking the habitat of natural desert species, leading to declines in these species. So with this brief introduction into the impact of population growth on the environment, I want you to think about how you would answer a couple of questions. There isn't a right answer and people can and do have different ideas about these issues. Do you believe that there are enough resources to allow a city like Phoenix to continue to grow and exist as it currently does? Are there too many people in Phoenix and can the world continue to support all of these people in Phoenix? How can you reconcile personal freedoms and happiness with broader environmental well-being? In other words, what are the dilemmas associated with telling someone that they can't have green yards in the desert because it's wasteful, it's not natural, despite it potentially making someone happy? What are some of the dilemmas of not restricting certain wasteful lifestyle practices? Who defines what is considered wasteful or environmentally harmful? If you need to take a break, now's a good time. All right, thinking about overpopulation and the impact of population growth on the environment is not a new train of thought. People have been thinking about this throughout history. We are gonna focus on the more contemporary discussions right now. 
Some have thought to measure the impact of human beings on the environment with a sort of equation. Like our Phoenix example, it's not just about paying attention to the number of people in this equation. The equation also highlights the rate and type of consumption as important. In this equation, it's proposed that every person added a particular impact on the earth, but the exact rate of that impact was influenced by things like affluence and the availability of technology. By affluence, I mean the wealth of a particular person or group of people. For example, people in Bangladesh use less water and energy than people in the United States. By availability of technology, I mean things like whether a population uses technologies like solar power versus coal power. The equation shown on this slide is used to illustrate the relationship between population, affluence, and technology on environmental impact. This equation isn't about getting a specific number to quantify impact. The equation is more of a framework for thinking about environmental impact. The equation has allowed individuals an easy way to think about, to discuss and argue, disagree and theorize the phenomena of environmental impact. And as you would expect, there have been disagreements and diverging perspectives on the exact roles of population, affluence, and technology on environmental impact. For example, some believe that population is the most important and impactful variable in the equation because it's the most difficult to control. Others have argued that technology is the most important variable to consider because it can have the biggest influence on environmental impact. Some have argued that development will actually lower human impact. This has been termed the environmental Kuznets curve. This idea says that as development initially occurs, environmental impact will increase because of per capita use of resources are rising, pollution is rising, and damage to ecosystems is increasing. However, after that initial development, once a certain threshold is reached, there will be regulation affluence, and economic transition, which will reduce the overall impact of humans. People who support this idea point to many parts of the developing world that have historically experienced high levels of deforestation, urbanization, and affluence, and has resulted in many rural areas being abandoned. And this has allowed the kind of natural environment to return to its normal state. And um, this has also been termed the forest transition theory. So I've put that definition up on a slide for you all to see. All right, now I want us to assume that everyone has agreed on how to measure environmental impact. And we all agree on the relative importance of particular variables. So now, hypothetically, we can come up with a number for environmental impact. Remember how earlier in the pre-recorded lecture I asked you who defines what is wasteful or environmentally harmful? Well, who decides what is too much environmental impact? And what is an acceptable level of environmental impact? What is that magic number? Is there a magic number? And again, who decides what that magic number is? To think about this question, 
I also want to highlight that some people reference the idea of carrying capacity, which is kind of this theoretical population limit that a system can support and sustain over an indeterminate amount of time. You all may have heard a statement like this before. If all people lived like they do in the United States, the Earth could only sustain 2 billion people. So now I'm going to ask you a few things. Is it reasonable for one country to be limited in the amount that they develop so that other countries can either continue to develop themselves or maintain their current level of consumption? If we all decide that countries need to change their consumption behaviors, who should benefit? Who should lose out? Who makes those decisions? Would it even be practically possible to come to a consensus on a decision like that? This presents an almost impossible dilemma. And if even in some way it were possible, it wouldn't be easy and it certainly won't be quick. As a result of difficulties associated with these very controversial issues, individuals have started to hone in on ways that they can personally hold themselves responsible and make small contributions to a big problem by reducing their what's termed ecological footprint. Now, some of you may have heard the term ecological footprint, but for those of you who haven't, it's defined as the theoretical spatial extent of the Earth's surface required to sustain an individual, group, system, or organization. It's a measure of environmental impact. The ecological footprint number yields an estimate of the land area and water required to sustain a person, group, system, or organization. There are a handful of tools online you can use to calculate your ecological footprint if you're interested. I did this for this lecture. I chose one from a website called footprintcalculator.org, and this is what the results return to me. You'll see that it gives me a measure of the amount of land that it would take to sustain my livelihood. Uh, it also told me that if everyone lived like me, we would need 4.5 Earths, and that's not great. But this is kind of to help you gauge what your lifestyle is like and maybe point you to some directions where you can make a personal change to make your livelihood a little more environmentally responsible. Now, I don't personally know how these tools do their calculations. Each tool is likely different, but I can't be critical of them in terms of accuracy. But for this class, that's not the purpose of talking about the tool. The point is that if everyone lived like people do in the developed wealthy nations, we'd need more planets to live on, or we'd need to get rid of people. And neither of those options are great. So what is the solution so that the Earth can support its population? As you can imagine, there are a lot of different ideas about what that solution should be or what the solutions should be. But I want you to consider first, what do you believe should be the solution? And my next question is, what are some legitimate arguments against your solution, even if you don't agree with them? I ask you this because it's important to acknowledge other perspectives. 
because to solve problems, especially these large global problems, you're going to need to effectively work together with other people, groups, and organizations that you both agree and don't agree with. Okay, so this is another good time for a break if you think you need one. Now I wanna flip from thinking of population growth as a negative thing and explore the potentially positive side of population growth. Throughout this pre-recorded lecture, I'm willing to bet some of you have been thinking, well, what about technology and innovation that stems from people for solving issues associated with population growth? Well, there's actually a significant number of academics, people who study history, thinkers, who believe that population growth is the reason why we have innovation and civilization. And actually, there's a lot of evidence to support this. Essentially, the idea is something you've likely heard before, that necessity is the mother of invention. I'll give you an example in relation to agricultural development. Historically, food was produced using relatively unsustainable practices that used up a lot of land for little return in food. What was happening was that the use and eventually overuse of the land made crop yields decrease. So technology adjusted and humans developed a system where land used for growing was alternated to give recently used land a time to rest and regain its fertility. This type of innovation was just the start of a series of ongoing innovations related to food. And looking at history, we see exponential growth in food production within the same amount of land. This idea is known as induced intensification which is a thesis predicting that where agricultural populations grow, demand for food leads to technological innovations resulting in increased food production on the same amount of available land. Another idea associated with population innovation discussions is something termed the Green Revolution, which is a suite of technological innovations developed in universities and research centers between the 1950s and 1980s that increased agricultural yields around the world um, dramatically. That being said, that innovation came with a series of negative effects, such as large amounts of fertilizers and pesticides going into the environment and into people's communities, which obviously influences health, increased uses of energy and water, um, disruption and loss of natural ecosystems, and basically similar problems that we were discussing earlier on in the lecture. All right, so we have one more section to cover. So if you need a break from me talking, this would be a good time to take a short walk, or maybe you can go to your guided notes. A lot of the critiques and discussions about the role of population on the environment have really assumed continuous growth. There wasn't a lot of thinking about the possibility of population growth declines. But current population trends show that population growth is actually declining. Population growth peaked between 1960 and 1970, but has since been approaching a state of zero population growth. Zero population growth is defined as a condition in a population where the number of births matches the number of deaths, meaning that there is no net increase. 
Again, this is interesting because a lot of the thought and discussion about growth really assumed that continuous growth. But with trends pointing towards population growth decline, it's useful to think about some of the reasons that that may be happening. So I'm going to talk about a few ideas, but recognize that there isn't one single explanation. And these examples are just a small part of the full picture. Before I provide the examples, I want to put up a couple more definitions here, which are death rate, birth rate, and fertility rate. So death rate is the measure of mortality in a population. Birth rate is a measure of natural growth in a population. And fertility rates are a measure describing the average number of children birthed by an average statistical woman during her reproductive life cycle. So as I said, I'm gonna highlight some examples of explanations for population growth decline. One of them are improvements in medicine and healthcare. Those improvements are linked with a decreased death rate. And this was kind of especially important in relation to improvements in pre and postnatal care, which reduced rates of infant mortality and deaths for women in childbirth. A second reason is uh, decreases in demand for family farm labor as people moved into cities. This was linked with a decreased birth rate. Essentially, people were having less babies because they didn't need as many hands and there wasn't as much space. And then a third example is improvements in women's rights, education, and literacy. This was associated with lower fertility rates. Now, especially with this last example, I want us all to be aware of the term correlation. Hopefully this is a term you all have heard elsewhere, but if not, correlation just says that two variables are associated. It doesn't imply that one variable caused a change in the other variable. All right, so I'm gonna stop here. Before Thursday's class, I want you all to really think about how you personally feel about these issues of overpopulation the impact of population growth on the environment, and potential solutions you would have to the problems discussed in class. I want you to think of solutions you feel strongly about and solutions you think may be problematic. Feel free to do a little research outside of class time, but that's not necessary. Also, you don't necessarily need to think about global scale solutions. If you need to narrow some of these issues down to think about them more practically, do that. Do it in a way that's meaningful to you. The topics covered in this class generally can make anyone feel bummed out, hopeless, but I don't want that to be this class. I really wanna emphasize that I want us to be able to look at problems from multiple perspectives, identify where we individually stand in a way that's true and authentic to ourselves and take those ideas and take that energy to find solutions. And those solutions can be big or small, but I guarantee you that they're all needed. I look forward to talking to you all on Thursday. Make sure to complete the guided notes and let me know if you have any questions. Bye everyone.